Welcome to the teaching ministry at Carthus Creek Community Church. Hey, good morning, family. Really glad that you're here this morning, and a huge hey to our online audience. I'm sure many of you are at cottages smelling turkey right now, so we welcome you. Well, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Uh, yeah, we can clap. Happy Thanksgiving. It's a, it's a good weekend. For all of uh, our American watchers who are totally confused, it's okay. We do it on the right day. You don't. Um, that's okay. Uh, it's fine. We get to put out Christmas decorations earlier, so I'm just great. Anyway, we all know uh, what's going on. Yesterday, today, or tomorrow, we're going to be celebrating, most of us, Thanksgiving. And we know at the center of Thanksgiving, it's even beyond family, it's about one thing. It's about food. We are going to participate in feasts that are really serious. Uh, one of the elders already walked in today. He looked exhausted and sort of disoriented. He said, I cooked a 30-pound turkey yesterday. I mean, that's a serious commitment. We all know what this is about, right? Ham or turkey. Now, if you're old school, pheasant or goose or grouse, anyone? No, okay. Uh, ham or turkey. Uh, we're, we're all about peas and corn and mashed potatoes and bread and gravy, and the list goes on and on and on. But like I've shared, at every Christmas and every Thanksgiving and every Easter, a battle ensues between myself and my wife. On Friday, we're driving up to get uh, some, some bread and some other stuff for the weekend and also uh, for Thanksgiving tomorrow. And my wife looks at me, and I look at her, and I know what's going to happen. I just looked at her and I said, squash is disgusting. Don't bring it up. And so is rutabaga. Thank you. Now, she looked at me and she said, no, it's not. I said, yes, it is. Turnip and squash. In my opinion, listen, turnip should just stay in the ground and rot. And squash, squash should be a decoration on my table. That is it. She looked at me with her usual fire and said, John, you're the pastor. I remind you that God created everything. Yeah. And then I said back to her, yes, but then it all got touched by sin, and that's a result of the fall. Thank you very much. Well, we debated back and forth. Our children are in the back not knowing what's going on in our marriage. She says, but you don't try it enough. I say, hon, I try it three times a year. I don't care how much butter or salt or brown sugar. It's disgusting. And then I realized that this is like World War I. It's entrenched. We're going nowhere at all. So then I say, let's talk about dessert, and everything's fine. Now, we all know that dessert is serious, I think, at Thanksgiving. Now, personally, I'm a pie person at Thanksgiving, and I, I love pie. Uh, we found out just today in pre-service that Sarah Berry, our worship leader today, baked eight pies yesterday, herself, homemade. Very impressive. Now, I personally love a really interesting one. Rosalind Alexander, who comes to our community, she does pumpkin pie. I'm a big fan, but she does it with meringue on top. Very cool. Love that. But I think my favorite pie, beyond pumpkin or lemon, it's coconut cream. Now, I don't think I'm getting that this Thanksgiving, but I do. Just turn to your neighbor now. Tell them your favorite pie. And if you don't like pie, uh, tell them another dessert. I don't know. Go. Really quick. I find this fascinating. <laughs> Every time we talk about food in this church, it gets very intense. <laughs> very, very intense. Well, I think, no, okay, so after, just before the meal or after, we're going to participate with family or friends or go to someone else's house, and we're going to have all this, and then I hope you're going to take a moment in prayer or communally to thank God for everything he's done for you and for us, and then after, I hope you all confess the sin of gluttony, because yes, you're about to commit that, 
seriously. And then after that, many of you are going to hit the treadmill on Tuesday. Now, here's what I thought about. Three words. Thanksgiving, turkey, and treadmills. It sounds like Wayne Saner, doesn't it? (laughs) And I thought, that encompasses what Thanksgiving is really all about. And as I was reading through this, again, very difficult passage we're walking through in Romans chapter 2, trying to see a correlation between these two, it hit me. And and it really does connect. See, right now we're in the book of Romans in chapter 2, and Paul is speaking to his family. Paul is hanging out with his community, those he grew up with, and the scenario that's unfolding right before us, though in a different context, is it's like Paul is showing up to a Thanksgiving dinner, and they're having a great dinner. Obviously no ham, but everything else is there. And they're hanging out, having a great dinner. They're having the pie. He's, you know, there. The family's there. They're all talking. And they come to the point, because, of course, they're very religious people, where they walk around the table, children, teens, adults, young adults, everyone, and says, I want to thank God for, for this and this and this. And then it gets to Paul. And Paul is like the uncle who should not talk at a Thanksgiving dinner. Except in this case, he's right. And everyone's looking at him, and the family's all there, and he stands up and says, I'm sorry, I can't agree. What? They say, you're wrong. Everything you've just thanked God for isn't yours. You think you're okay, and you're not okay. Everything that you just thank God for, your history, what God's doing in your life, actually is not what you think. Actually, he's not even involved in this family. And then, if that's not insulting enough at a Thanksgiving dinner or any gathering, he says, you know the treadmill you're about to run to? You know, on Tuesday? That's the best symbol of your life. You think that you're going to run and run and run, and you're going to get nowhere, I remind you. And it may help you with this, but your life is like a treadmill, and you work your whole life to be good and moral and kind and religious, and it's going to get you no closer to God, and not one pound of sin is going to be dealt with. Happy Thanksgiving, Paul says. See, what we're about to see this morning is Paul speaking into a community that is unbelievably thankful. You're about to see this. They're about to list everything they're thankful for, and then he's about to tell them, you've misunderstood the whole story. Now, last week we were in Romans chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, I'd love you to, you can turn it on or turn to it, whatever you've got. And if there's one verse that summarizes what we learned last week in Romans 2, it's verse 11. It's this. Here at this morning, God does not show favoritism. God does not show favoritism. He will not show any different consideration to a person because of who they are. Your intelligence or position, your many acts of kindness, giving to charities, our heritage, our religiosity. Statements like, but I'm a church member, or my family are Christians, or we're good Jews, or good Buddhists, or I'm spiritual. I've given so much up for others. None of it will move God, Paul says. Wealth. Power, position, race, color, nationality, heritage, philosophy, education, being really religious or being non-religious, none of it will count for anything when we face God. Jew, non-Jew, right-believing, wrong-believing, the measuring rod we found out will be the same for all of us. Simply put, God will deal with all of us with faultless discrimination at the end of time. And let's not forget as we dive back into chapter 2 that Paul again is speaking to his family here, the religious Jewish community of his day. Paul basically is letting the Roman Christian community made up of Jew and non-Jew and us the same here overhearing this conversation, this challenge between himself and his family, which I remind you 
was his family for most of his life. Paul is saying to his own ethnic community, you are not saved because you're a Jew. I'm a Jew, he reminds them, and I was more religious and better trained than most of you are. All of us, Jewish, non-Jewish, religious, pagan, everything else, and everyone else, we're all in trouble, and we all need an external Savior. And that act of saving, that act of relationship, cannot be done by us, bought by us, practiced by us, earned by us, or anything else. We're all under God's wrath because we've all decided to sin. And so with that in mind, we come to the second part of Romans chapter 2. Now, we're going to read through 17 through 24 and, or, and farther. And you could read these verses and say, well, there's a tone of sarcasm there. And there is. But don't miss what Paul is trying to do in his day. All the privileges, all that he is thankful for and the Jews are thankful for are real. They're legitimate. They all have backing in the Old Testament. Everything they're saying is right. The problem, one wrote, is this. It's not that the Jews, the community, is illegitimately boasting in something that's not theirs. The problem, rather, is they're not living up to the claims they own. And so imagine, again, at that dinner table, Paul having an honest, intense, in-your-face, back-and-forth chat with his family. And he starts pointing out the first elephant in the room, which to us we'd probably miss. It's the wrong use of heritage. Verse 17 starts like this, and you can read in your scriptures. Now you... Now, if you call yourself, he says, a Jew. Now, let's stop right there. When I hear the phrase Jew, I think of a race of people. Some of my friends are Jewish people. But it means so much more when you know the history. Actually, the title or the phrase or the word Jew actually means, I didn't know this, praise to God, praise to Jehovah or Yahweh. It it represents both a, a racial and a religious heritage. When God called Abraham and birthed the Jewish people through him, the promise of the Jewish race was huge. All the way back in Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. You're my special people, God says. I love you above all others. And by the way, the whole world is going to be blessed through you. Now, in Paul's time, many Jews lived among non-Jews throughout the Roman Empire. It was called the Diaspora. And, and so they used to always use the word or the title Jew as a surname to remind themselves and their families and all their pagan neighbors about who they were and what faith they belonged to. So it would go like this if I was a Jew living in those days. I would call myself Jonathan David Thompson Jew. It would become my real last name. Its meaning signified that one belonged to that people, that distinct people from all other nations because God had chosen them to be his own people. Paul starts here because everything else, all the other benefits they thank God for, is going to flow from this fundamental one. Paul moves from that cherished religious identity to tackling false security in religious knowledge. He says it in the second part of 17. If you rely on the law and you brag about your relationship to God, the first uh, five books of the Bible are, are the law, summarized in the Ten Commandments. Yet, by this time, the whole Old Testament was the law. All of God's covenants, blessings, curses, His warnings, His promises, His rights, His rituals, His moral expectations, everything that God had talked about Himself, about humanity and salvation, is the law. Now, this community saw that their special status came from, here it is, ready? Possessing the law, not obeying the law. Rabbis knew that they could not fully keep the law, so they started saying, well, if you learn all the facts, 
then you're going to get saved. By having it, by being the recipient of it, the custodian of the law, they came to believe one thing, that they were immune from judgment. They would not at the end of time experience what the rest of us would. They would be delivered. But not only did they identify with the law, they also bragged about their relationship with God. Now, bragging can be a good or bad thing. It all depends on what you boast in. Now, they were saying, look, here's the simple truth. We claim superior standing because of God and our proximity to God. He knows us. We actually relationally know him, and the rest of you don't, period. It says in verse 18 these words, If you know his will and approve what is superior because you're instructed in the law— Paul says, look, we all know you know the law. You have the Ten Commandments. You've got the Torah, the prophets, from Genesis to Malachi. You've learned it from childhood. You know who God is and what his will is for the world, for families, for relationship. You can even discern what's right and wrong, which makes you superior. You think you're far beyond the ignorant masses of people that flock to idols and materialism and demons. Paul just keeps on outlining his old worldview and their current one. Verse 19, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, this community thought, look, we are guides and lights because through God's law and his residence with us, we're in a position to help a really messed up dark world see their creator. See, they would look back to verses like Isaiah 42, and it goes like this. I, the Lord, have called you into righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for non-Jews, to open the eyes of the blind, to free captives from the prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And they would say, see, that's us. That, that's our job. We can see and no one else can see. All of humanity is blind. They stumble in the darkness. On our most boring days, we have the light of heaven. And because of this, he says in verse 20, we are an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of infants, and because we have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You've got to understand where Paul's going with this. He's outlining everything they hold. Without special revelation, without the law, the world has become foolish, they say, worshiping and loving everything except God himself. The non-Jewish world were, in their opinion, infants. They were little children when it came to religious understanding. They needed to be taught and encounter the living God through us and us alone. Now, so far in this conversation over dinner, this would not be biting, insulting, or offensive at all. As Paul would outline all this, they'd say yes. They'd say yes to every one of these descriptors. Yeah, that's us. God started this, they would say. This is God's will. And if you have a problem with this, go talk to the creator of the universe. We didn't start it. We didn't even choose him. He chose us. Paul, in return, listen, would say, you're right. Everything I've outlined is true. And by the way, it's about me too. But then he'd turn the tables and say this. So what? So what? So what? So so, so much good knowledge, he'd say. So much holy history. So much given. But does all this right thinking actually lead to life change? Does orthodoxy lead to orthopraxy? Here's the question. Do you really know the one you talk about all the time? Like I quoted last week from Bruxy Cavey, he said, if this is what someone knows about God and his will, and this is how much we do, the gap in between is called hypocrisy. Paul looks at his friends. Paul looks at his old life and says, the gap isn't this big. It's this big. He keeps going. And then he starts saying words 
like this that are, are just are so difficult. He says in verse 20, listen, you're an instructor to foolish, a teacher to infants, really? Really? Well, then let's talk about this. Verse 21, you then, you all who teach others, do you teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, a question, do, do you steal? You who say that people shouldn't commit adultery and wag your finger, are, are you committing adultery? At this moment, the environment would change. You can imagine over dinner. Uh, stunned and insulted would lead to outright anger. They would cry out, that's not fair. And that's not true, Paul, and you don't have a right to say this. We don't steal. We don't commit adultery. We're not out sleeping around. And oh, by the way, we're not worshiping dumb idols like the rest of the world, and we keep the Sabbath. What you're saying isn't fair. But Paul, knowing because he himself was one with a massive gap before, would say, God doesn't just look at our actions. God looks at our thoughts and our, and our motives. I mean, Jesus, when he was talking to the religious leaders of his day, said the same thing, right? We talked about this last week, adultery, Matthew 5. He, he said, you, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, one of the Ten Commandments. But I tell you that any person who looks at anyone lustfully has already committed adultery with them in their hearts. Who among us listening, I said this last week, who among us watching online right now, who among us here at C4 has not in emotion, thought, or deed committed adultery? All of us who are married have, and all of us who are not married have committed the other part of it, fornication. And that's only one of the Ten Commandments. And if you break one of God's laws, you violate all of them. Because as I've taught you, God's law does not come separately from God. They are divine DNA. When you assault the law, you assault the author. Understand the pungency of this. When you break one of God's laws, it's not just sticking your middle finger in God's face. It's actually hitting God himself. Paul again is just filling out what he started teaching us in Romans 1. He's saying, look, a Jew cannot any more than a non-Jew claim exemption from God's judgment based on personal holiness, good works, or a religious heritage. He says, you teach so much. He said, I used to too. You, you, you talk about stealing and adultery and hypocrisy. He says, but let's go a step further. He says this in verse 22. You who hate idols, do you rob temples? Now, when I reread this this week, I had to go, hmm. I really wonder what Paul's talking about here because as a modern person, I have trouble relating to this. Read a lot of different things and found out two possibilities. I, I love how one summarized it this way. Don't get bored with this. It's all leading somewhere very significant. One person said to rob temple, the temples may have referred to Jews robbing their own temple in Jerusalem. As noted above, they often robbed God by withholding their tithes and offerings. The Bible says that those who follow the living God are called to give a minimum of 10%, a minimum of 10%, right off the top to the living God, and maybe they weren't. But Paul's reference to hating idols may direct us in a different place. In the Old Testament, it was strictly forbidden for a Jew, when they conquered another nation, to ever make money off idols in any way. Now, in the New Testament time, they weren't conquering anyone anymore. But it was possible that individual rogue Jews were plundering pagan temples in their cities for mercenary reasons. The statement, you can read it in Acts 19, where the Ephes in Ephesus, where the clerk says that Paul was not robbing temples, suggests that it was maybe not uncommon for this community to be guilty of this. It's possible that despite the clear law, offending Jews rationalized this theft 
by thinking they were doing God a favor by striking a blow at paganism. And Paul turns around in the middle of Thanksgiving and says, you're a hypocrite. Your, your motive isn't religious. It's mercenary. Uh, come on, it's money. What they were doing is they were breaking into large and small temples and stealing the idols and melting them down and getting the money for them. So Paul says, so you're not giving to the God that we all love in, in, in Jerusalem, or you're involved with idols that you say you don't love at all on Saturday at Sabbath. So it sounds like you're actually not much different than your nice pagan neighbor next door. And since, of course, we as Jews actually know God and know he sees all, knows all, and is present, here's the question. You don't think because you're religious you're better than everyone else, do you? He says in verse 23 these words, You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it's written in the Old Testament, God's name is mocked, spit upon, blasphemed among non-Jews because of, not them, because of you. By not obeying God's law, you dishonor the God you supposedly love. You actually mock God himself. And there is no difference between them kissing the mouth of an idol and you. Dishonor is dishonor. When the law is broken in one way or the other, it's just as bad. And it just doesn't end there. This damage violates the calling of us as Jews to be a light to the nations, to bless all the other nations, to introduce them to the world. You think you're guides? You think you're light, you're correctors and teachers. I used to think this too, he said. You look down on the world with disgust and scorn and anger. And because you're so self-righteous and self-centered and self-deceived, you turn the world away from the God they desperately need. When you think you're worshiping God and yelling at the world with capital T truth, what you're really doing is slamming the door shut on a world that's lost. And I remind you, he'd say, that God loves them too should be noted by this time in that community, they were filled with such arrogance and pride. They called non-Jews dogs. And the biggest insult you could levy against a fellow Jew was to call him a non-Jew, an uncircumcised pagan. They were supposed to be the light of the world. They had so much more than all of us who weren't Jews, but they just decided that we didn't just deserve it this time. It was the book of Jonah all over again. Now, if this wasn't insulting enough, Paul takes another run at it from identity and religious writing. Then he says, I'm going to take on the physical expression of this relationship. See, next to the law, to a Jewish person of this day, the most important sign of this relationship was circumcision. Now listen to what God said to Abraham when he chose him to birth his people. It's in Genesis 17. This is my covenant with you. It's our marriage agreement. Your descendants after you, the covenant that they're called to keep. Every male among you will be circumcised. You're to undergo circumcision. It will be a sign of our agreement between us. From, the generation to, from every generation to come, males among you on the eighth day must be circumcised. Circumcision then became a physical sign of the Jewish faith. It wasn't about cleanliness. or No, it was religious. Now, I'm just going to stop this morning for a moment and say what so many of you are thinking. Seriously, God, circumcision? Like, why did you have to choose, honestly, the penis? Ear, nose, belly button, haircut? Seriously, but this? Now, this doesn't make sense to us as modern readers. Many of us growing up in church just decided not to ask. And <laughs> that's nice, God, no clue, no clue. And many of you here today who are going to church for the first time are like, wow. Didn't expect that on Thanksgiving. Painful. Happy church. So here's the honest question. 
I mean, honestly, did you hear a lot about circumcision in Sunday school if you did the church thing? No. <laughs> Parents would have to describe it. Very difficult. So here's the question. Why in the world would God choose this act? It's really important. And by the way, God actually knows what he's doing. Shock. One person put it this way, and it helps us today. No doubt this surgery was a symbolic gesture of the sinfulness that's passed on from generation to generation. It's about seed. The very procreation organ needed to be cleansed of a covering. So people at the very center of their nature is sinful and needs a cleansing in the heart. This graphic symbol of the need, listen, for the removing of sin became a sign to believing Jews. It's about forgiveness. It's about sin. It's about something significant happened. It was a physical symbol that generation to generation, God would have to be reconnected with and forgiveness would be given. But now at this moment, the meaning had been forgotten. It had become a sign, yes, of not being under God's wrath, but it also became a sign of arrogance. Many started believing that circumcision actually just secured salvation. One rabbi wrote in his commentary in the book of Moses, our rabbi said that no circumcised man will ever see hell. Another said circumcision saves you from hell. And in the Midrash, Tillam actually said, God swore to Abraham that no one who's circumcised will ever see God's wrath or go to hell. But Paul, right at this moment, challenges this idea right up front. And by the way, if you read Philippians 2, he's, he says, don't, don't say, I'm not one of you. He says, I'm in an elite group, an elite tribe. I was circumcised on the eighth day, and I know the law better than you. He says in, in verse 25, circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you've become as though you never were circumcised. You practice the law perfectly, Paul says, and then the sign is valid. But if you break even one of God's laws, just once you commit lust, or once you steal, or once you dishonor your parents, or once you break the Sabbath, once... You're really not a child of God. You're separated. Thousands of years of understanding challenge right here. Paul keeps going. If those who are circumcised keep the laws, who are not circumcised, keep the law's requirement, they'll be regarded as one who's been circumcised. The one who's not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you too. Even though you have the law, the written code, and circumcision, you're a lawbreaker. Paul says you cannot count on circumcision to save you from judgment because guess what? Whether you like it or believe it or not, you're a lawbreaker. You think that some outward sign is going to save you? This sign was given by the living God to demonstrate something you don't even do anymore. Well, at this point, you can imagine the anger would be near boiling or would come to fisticuffs. He had undermined everything that not only gave religious ethnic identity, but he had undermined all the religious underpinnings of the misunderstood Jewish faith. He would say, listen, much of what you say is actually right, and we are a special people. But the way you've applied it is wrong. Wrong to the point, I don't even think you know the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. Now at this point, most would walk away or agree to disagree, but Paul says, no, I'm not done. He says in verse 28, a man is, is not a Jew if it's only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward or physical. I love what Chuck Swindoll wrote on this. He says, which would you prefer? Listen closely. Which would you prefer, an unfaithful spouse who proudly wears a wedding band or a mate who guards your shared intimacy with his or her life but doesn't wear a ring? The wedding band, and if you who are married have one, is circular. It's gold usually. It's a symbol of eternal fidelity. It's supposed to be an outward sign of what actually is in the wearer's heart. 
How foolish it would be for us today to think that a ring is the most important element of a marital union. Furthermore, how foolish, he writes, to think a ring could actually keep someone faithful to their mate. Circumcision and a wedding band are actually the exact same. They're supposed to be outward symbols of an inner conviction. Unfortunately, he writes, religion always places undue emphasis on the symbol while ignoring what God really is about, your insides. He says in verse 29, No man is a Jew if he's one outwardly, and circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit of God, not by some written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but it's from God. Real Jewishness, Paul says here, being in relationship with God, according to Paul, is not about physical birth or cuts on your skin or devotion to God's book. A real Jew, a real child of God, a man or a woman, is an inward thing first. And you only get this, Paul will say throughout Romans, when you trust, hear this, alone in Jesus' work, then you're given the Spirit of God who circumcises and changes your heart. Paul again and again is going to say, only those through faith in Jesus who receive the Spirit of God make up, hear this, God's true people. There's a radical redefinition of Jew here. The people of God are only the people that have met Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. That's it. The church. Now at the heart of the church is the Messianic Jewish movement. We're all grafted into them. But there is no one in the world who is a child of God. There's no one in the world, hear this, who knows God personally if they do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly what he's saying here. Now, one last thing just to say. Romans 2 has been used for centuries to prove that Christianity supposedly is anti-Semitic. And many in the Christian movement who are not Christians have used it to assault Jews. I just want to say right up front, both of those are dead wrong. Paul says everything he says to a Jewish community that he says to a non-Jewish community. It's written by himself, who is an exemplary Jew. What he is saying is he is not anti-Jewish, hear this, he is anti-natural person. He has no time for humanity saying we have enough power, Jew or non-Jew, to save ourselves. That's the heartbeat of Paul. Now, the question is this, this morning, and it's an important one. On, on this beautiful Thanksgiving weekend, what is the living God saying to us here gathered and saying to all of us gathering online, wherever we might be? And, and please, this is when we really need to pay attention. For the many of you listening and watching or here who are not Christians, you who have maybe the title Christian or you're not one at all, Paul again is pointing to you and says one thing. You have a false sense of spiritual security. You have, knowingly or not, tried to convince yourself that you're basically good and everything's just okay, but you're not. Many of us, especially in the West, in the middle class, trust in economics or job security or material security or national security or health security or social position. But many of you never think about spiritual security, eternal security. Yeah, beyond all of that, most people are spiritual, and you think you're just good with the guy upstairs because you say things like, well, I am good. I am religious. I give. I'm kind. I give to charities. I, I was born into a Christian family. I was baptized as an infant. I have done. Here's the phrases. I have done. I am. I promise. I will become. I will do. And all of these phrases you think reflect truth. But just like the Jewish community, all of this does not please God and cannot deal with the sin you've done against God others, and yourself. You live a life under the burden of formal or self-invented religion. 
You think uh, phrases like this uh, reflect reality. You, you just got to pay for stuff. You get what you pay for. There's no free lunches in this world. Or here's the best one. Your worldview is a treadmill of good works. You just think by running and running and running and running, you're going to get somewhere and you're not. I love again how Chuck Swindoll talked about your condition. Hear, hear this closely. Religion, he wrote, emphasizes the physical over the spiritual every time. It underscores pious activity and the appearance of sacrificial labor. Religion keeps a person busy to the point of exhaustion and emphasizes doing good in order to be seen and admired by ourselves, others, and God. Oh, God, look at me. Look all the things I'm doing. Aren't you so impressed? I'm exhausted, but aren't you so impressed? That's what religion teaches. And no matter the religious system, it always in the end is about you. Religion, he writes, also emphasizes secondary matters while ignoring primary ones. Symbol and tradition and rituals and family become more important than the actual mission of the church or the maturity of God's people. Outward appearance becomes the focus of attention rather than sincere belief, genuine obedience, and real relationship. The question on this Thanksgiving the living God gives to any of you in that category is this. What will you do with God's truth? And who will you trust in? Who will you trust in now and forever? Will you decide that you in the end can deal with your stuff and you're God enough to deal with it? Or will you come to the realization and the humility, like many of us, us, including myself, had to, and get on your knee and say, you know what? The truth is, I am under wrath, I am a sinner, and I need someone else to step in to help me. Paul will say again and again, the only person who's lived a perfect life and has dealt with everything that you've ever participated in that's wicked, is Jesus. That's why he says later in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not about you or what you do. It's about him. The question this morning, and in this series, and for the rest of your life is, what will you do with the claims of Jesus and his work for you? You know, many of us sitting here have done this. Some of us have been Christians for days, weeks, months, and years. And as we come on this Thanksgiving, I have one thought for us as Jesus followers, and I'd ask you to listen closely. You know, it's funny. When you read the list of benefits the Jews claimed, we claim all the same benefits. Because we trust in Jesus, we say, because he's dealt with our deserved wrath, and we've rejected religion, we are God's community. We are God's hands and feet. We are called the light of the world. But the challenge for us this Thanksgiving is this. Has God's amazing work and grace in our community, in in our lives, become an environment that breeds arrogance, apathy, cruelty, or here's the scariest thing, have we become uncaring? When we as Christ followers feel superior, we should be aware, for such an attitude is never a sign of grace. One pastor asked these questions of his elders and himself and fellow staff and even the whole church, and on this Thanksgiving... I'm going to ask us the same questions. Here's the first one. It's our title. When you say, I'm a Christian, who gets the glory? God or you? I'm a Christian. Here's another question. We possess divine truth. Do we behave as though God's truth doesn't apply to us anymore? Or somehow we've risen above the need for grace because we're in and we have fire insurance? Or here's another one. Our unique relationship with God. 
And what do we boast in, assign credit to? Is it really still for us the grace of God? Or have we actually bought back into religion where we go, you know, I know it's by Jesus' work, but do you know how amazing I am as a Christian? Like, seriously, look at me. It's amazing. Or here's another one. The knowledge of God's will. Many of us have not one Bible or two. We have 20. We can walk around and quote Scripture, but here's the question. Are we simply, please hear this, biding our time until Jesus ushers in the end times, or are we actively involved in God's plan to reach out to our world with the good news and fill it with His righteousness? Yeah, 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 John. I know that God says, even on Thanksgiving, go out into all nations and make disciples. But you know, people do that. I don't need to. Are you joking me? How much do you know about what God says and how much do you do? The world is dying and you're playing church? Paul would write the same thing to us that he wrote to his own family. Here's the last one he'd ask. What about our responsibility to instruct the nations? As we teach, we're evangelicals, we like the Bible. As we teach and memorize and we quote scripture, do we actually practice the truth we preach so the world actually might be one without even saying very few words? Our world is dying. It's tired. It's lost. It's under the power of sin and death and the demonic, even on days called Thanksgiving. And so without any pride or arrogance, the question is, will we become the hands and feet of Jesus or will we choose, because we choose this, to repeat history and become like our spiritual forefathers, where we as Christians choose to be protective, fortress-like, uncaring, and not engaging, and come out actually thinking, not everyone's watching us anyways, or who cares if they're watching us, because they don't have fire insurance, and I do, and honestly, if I'm really honest, I just don't care that my neighbors are going to hell anymore. I'm just in, and I'm fine with it. Let's go to Sunday again. Will God's name, Paul would ask you, would God's name be blasphemed among your friends or your neighbors or your enemies or your co-workers or family because of who you are and how you live your life or will God be seen? That is the question that matters and our personal and communal response will actually answer the great vision before us at C4 to reach 10,000 people. So many of you, again, still think this is about ego. So many of you still think this is a personal agenda of mine or the leadership to get big. You don't understand. As one guy prayed so brilliantly in my small group, God, why don't they get it? It's 10,000 people who are lost. This is what Paul challenges with. The answer, by the way, is not found in God's power or his will. He's already told the leadership and us to go take the promised land. The real challenge is, are you and we going to say yes or no? That is what faces us even this Thanksgiving. The truth is that everything that our Jewish spiritual forefathers, because we are birthed from them, everything they did, we can end up doing and not even realize it. What does the living God say to you this Thanksgiving? If you've been encouraged, hear it, embrace it, and live in it. If you've been challenged, embrace it too. And if he's rebuked you this morning, submit because your freedom and other people's freedom is at stake. This Thanksgiving, he has spoken because his word has been broken. And there is no better thing to be thankful for. And let me tell you why. Because always in the end, when we actually embrace his will, he gets glory. We all get freedom. 
and the world really gets to see Jesus clearly. If there's something better than turkey and ham, even squash or pie, it's this. God decided to love us when we didn't love him. And now we have been given the great task that we cannot do by ourselves, but with the Spirit of God we can, to start reaching out en masse and saying to a broken, lost world made up of Jews and non-Jews and everyone in between, guess what? You can actually be thankful again too because there's actually hope in this messed up world. What will you do with what Paul instructs us about? God asks you, not just me. Let's pray. Living God of heaven and earth, the same one who called Abraham, the same one who met Paul, who hated Christians and thought he was so unbelievable, and you broke him so he could be saved, the same one that's met so many of us in this place, we just want to start by saying as a community, thank you. Like seriously, thank you that you would love us, that you would forgive us of sins, that you would actually set, set the whole direction of history so we'd get to re-meet you. I mean, just a huge thank you. And on this day that we celebrate with family and friends, and some of it's good, and honestly, sometimes these family gatherings are bad, that we want to put, put our eyes back on you. And a few prayers today. Lord, for those who have not met you yet, I just again pray that you would just literally speak to them, meet them, show them their brokenness, but also show them that you are the great forgiver of sins and you desire them. You've been thinking about them since that sperm hit the egg and made them because you did that. And for many of us here too, Lord, we want to just say sorry. We have become religious and arrogant, protectionistic, and we've forgotten our call to a broken world. And it's so easy, Lord, like within the next 48 hours, many of us will struggle to remember this again because we live so busy. So I'm asking you, God, by your word and by your spirit to speak to us very directly. And our prayer again as a community is these words. Lord, do whatever you need to do with us. And I know we've said this a lot, but we mean it, including, Lord, breaking, <laughs> breaking us when we think we're serving you and we're not. Break religiosity in this church, I pray in the name of Jesus. And give us freedom and hope. And I pray, God, again, for your glory only, that one day we will celebrate as thousands of people are baptized. And I don't just pray this for Crothers. I pray this for every church that loves you in this area. And all of God's people said, amen. We're going to respond today um, in the best way we should at Thanksgiving. Um, we're going to do communion. And as I've shared many times before, and Dave has, and Wayne, and many others, is communion... And hear this again, even if it's, you've heard it a million times. Communion is when Jesus sat with his closest friends, the founders of our movement, our great-grandfathers. And he took some bread just before he was murdered, and he ripped it in half at a Passover dinner. He said, my body's going to be broken and ripped just like this on a cross. And then he took one of the cups of wine. There were more than one, and he picked one up, and he said, you know what? My blood is about to be shed. But then he says, there's going to be a new agreement between us. It's not going to be based on what you do anymore. It's going to be based on what I've done for you. And every one of us who are Christians today, new or old, if you are following Jesus, then he says, every time you do this, gather and remember what I've done. This is an act of remembrance where we thank Jesus for dying for us. We thank the Father for sending him. And we thank the Holy Spirit for introducing us. It's also 
a reminder that we need to confess sin. And so take a moment to do that. But the greatest reminder of communion is not just a past thing or a present thing, it's a future thing. Our hope as Christians is that one day, Jesus is going to return and make the world right. Amen? And we're going to be with every person who's ever followed our God. And it says that we are going to have a meal together and we'll no longer take communion because we will not remember the one. We'll be looking right at him. Nothing more beautiful. So when you take communion today, on this Thanksgiving, say thank you. Say forgive me. Say give me hope. One last thing. Scripture's clear. If you're not a Christian yet, don't take this because you haven't met the one that it represents. But it's a great place to meet him, to say, yes, I accept you. And if you're a Christian on the run, and you're refusing to deal with God right now, it says, don't take, take this, because you make mockery of the one who's given you so much. But he also says this morning, I still want you to come back. So let me pray over this, and we'll respond. It's going to be passed today, and you can sit or stand however you feel comfortable as Sarah leads us. God, we pray you'd bless these elements, just simple bread and simple juice. We pray, Lord, though, that you'd meet us now at this moment. I pray for gratitude uh, to be filled in our hearts. I mean this. Help me too. Help us to be forgiven of our sins. Give us hope that some of us have forgotten about. Inspire us to share our faith. And I just pray you'd meet people wherever they are right now. I ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the true and living God. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, crotherscreek.ca.